This is Sound Heights Records Podcast, Session 1. And the song lyric of the day is from What is Real by our guest Brian Stoltz. What is real as the layers around everything begin to peel? What is real as the structure falls apart and our souls reveal? What is real? Well, yes, I hear you, and I understand. I'll be looking for you throughout the show. Welcome to the Sound Heights Records Podcast. Harmonizing life and music, growing as an artist, improving as a person, gaining insight and inspiration, conversations with world-class musicians. Welcome to the very first session of the Sound Heights Records podcast. I'm your host, Israel Aryeh Gutblatt. This has been a concept that we've been thinking about for a long time, and I say we, I mean myself and different friends and uh, colleagues that uh, I've been discussing these topics with. Basically, for a musician, and this could apply to any artist, but my particular interest is in music, creation, composition, performance. Well, when a musician wants to grow as a musician, so you, you get into a practice room and you spend time Woodshedding, learning your skills, you can study from other musicians, from masters, play with other musicians, you grow. And there's many, many skills, and there's nowadays there's a lot of resources available. And it's no better time, I think, to be a musician and to be a working musician. But what comes with being a working musician, or even being a person who would love to be a working musician but couldn't even imagine themselves being a professional musician, or even having music really permeating their lives on a regular basis. The, some of the challenges that come up is how we can balance our creative inspiration, our creative flow, our, our really what can be a really intense passion to kind of disappear or escape or, or rather travel in, in the world of, of uh, the creative process and how one balances that with uh, the rest of one's life. Well, particularly having a family, uh, relationships, uh, making, uh, making a good living, raising children, uh, being healthy. So all these, these topics are something that we've been discussing for a long time. Also, as a rabbi, I have an interest in uh, getting into some of the mystical elements of these questions as well as some of the basic religious commitments that may or may not conflict or harmonize. I think they harmonize, but <laughs> other people might have different opinions. Um, they, ca they can seem to conflict at some points. Um, you know, could religious obligations, like let's say Sabbath observance, when uh, musical activity is uh, prohibited, though not completely prohibited, um, and that can be something that a topic that I hope to discuss later on and also in terms of what music is is appropriate or rather what music is uplifting for the soul and how can one really actualize and deepen one's involvement in that music which is really uplifting and, and nurturing for the soul and kind of refine that process for oneself as 
becoming a better musician just in, in the very down-to-earth sense, just becoming better, being able to communicate uh, deeper parts of ourselves, even to the point of, uh, of channeling a higher aspects of ourselves. So these are all topics that, God willing, we'll be discussing over time. But let me, let's get to our first guest, because our first interview was, uh, I found, really inspiring. It's with uh, my good friend Brian Stoltz, who is well known from his sessions uh, for many years, playing and touring and recording with the Neville Brothers, with the Funky Meters. He recorded a uh, really incredibly seminal album with Bob Dylan, um, which Bob Dylan wrote about him in, in really glowing terms. Very unique person, very spiritual person. He's, al he's also a family man. He has, uh, uh, he's married, lives in Slidell, Louisiana. And uh, he had a certain insights that he got into, uh, one of which, which really blew my mind, which uh, you'll hear, hear us talk about. But the thing that he calls, uh, actually, that Art Neville, the, the leader of the Neville Brothers and of the Funky Meters, calls the secret groove. So here it is, our interview with Brian Stoltz, unraveling the mystery of the secret groove. I was just trying to make some coffee while we talked. I know, I just, I just ran to get some coffee myself. <laughs> I wish I could pass you some. Yeah, I got I got right here. <laughs> Thanks, man. Oh, okay. Remember that place we ate uh, basil's? Was, oh yeah. Yeah, so I, I just grabbed coffee. Yeah, good there. coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah, there ain't nothing better than good New York coffee. You you make. Um, well, I'm you... sitting here looking at a can of chock full of nuts, <laughs> but I'm using something else today. <laughs> All right. I usually keep it in the house. When I, when I when I start missing New York. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> First thing I, I'd ask you is to start kind of at the beginning of your musical journey, if if you would, just to, to tell me a little bit about your major influences, the, the first things that come to mind. Well, my major influences was early, uh, early New Orleans rhythm and blues and Beatles. Um, you know, back in, you know, I was born in 55. So by, um, you know, early 60s, you know, 62, 63, 64, you know, eight, nine years old, um, you know, the radio in New Orleans was unique because you'd hear all kinds of stuff on the radio. It wasn't I mean, yeah, they had a soul station and they had, you know, like rock stations or pop stations. But a lot of these stations, you know, it was already crossing over. I don't know if it was just a New Orleans thing or that was happening all over. But, you know, you'd hear, uh, you know, you'd hear some local New Orleans, you'd hear Fats Domino and then right behind it you'd hear a Beatles song, you know, new new Beatles song and then an Aretha Franklin song, James Brown. So... You know, I had a pretty wide, uh, pretty big variety of stuff to uh, inspire me. It was, it was really, it was really Beatles when Beatles came out. I mean, that was just that just blew me away so bad. But I would say that and early New Orleans rhythm and blues, and you know, my mother's old Fats Domino records, and people like Earl King and Lloyd Price on the radio, stuff like that. You know, old New Orleans R and B. At what point did you uh, get inspired to pick up the guitar, or did you start? You started on guitar. 
I started on guitar, but, you know, before that, um, you know, like, them Beatle records came out, and I used to, I used to beat on the bar chairs, (laughs) on the bar stools with pencils, like it was a snare drum, you know, (laughs) so I wanted to play drums bad, and I'd beat on everything, so, but I was picking up rhythms from early, because, um, you know, I'd sit there for hours, really, with two pencils and a in a stool and play on that thing along the Beatle records just you know so I had every rhythm down you know <laughs> I had all of that down so that was my first thing you know um so rhythm was was my kind of my introduction you know that and the and the you know the you go to parades at Mardi Gras time and there was something about you know, you'd be standing on St. Charles Avenue or something, and the parade starts coming up the street. But, you know, from way far away from a distance, you know, you'd hear the bands coming up the street. You'd hear that bass drum just booming. And there was something about that bass drum that just, it was, I don't know how to describe it, but it was like some kind of, it was just like hearing the Beatles. It was some kind of a transmission. It was like, you know, it was like an initiation almost. Um you know, you you hear those things, you hear those things, and 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 they just they 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 penetrate inside you, and, and it really it becomes an initiation. At that point, you have to you you have to move in a certain direction. It forces you to move in a, a different direction. It forces you to take on you know whatever it is you need to do to get to the next step. You know. So what what age are we talking about that that these memories come real clear? Well, the, uh, you know, the Beatles stuff was uh, 64, um, so yeah, I was nine years old, mm. and even earlier was the parade stuff. I mean, geez, I must have been four years old, five years old, that, you know, I have a memory of standing on St. Charles Avenue at a parade and that happening, you know. All those little things, you know, New Orleans, there's so much music around here, you know, it's music everywhere. You know, so things like that would just, whenever I'd hear street things, they would, they acted like that. They acted like some type of a, you know, transmission or initiation where they just enter you and you have to, you know, it's like I remember being a little kid and I I remember being in a car with my father and my grandfather and we were cutting through the quarter and they went up Bourbon Street, and and we had the windows rolled down. And as we riding up Bourbon Street, you can hear that music coming out of the clubs. You could hear, you know, traditional jazz, Dixieland coming out of the clubs, hmm. and just hearing that, just that little bit passing the clubs in the car driving past, I can't even tell you what it would do to me. It would, it would like it, it would just transport me hmm. into this other place. Where I was just, you know, this world of music where I just had to, you know, be in it, you know. So every time I'd have one of those experiences, they would just, I'd have like this heightened sense of, of just, uh, I can't even describe what it is, but mm. this heightened sense, you know, being in music. And it would just propel me to another place and, you know, just gave me inspiration. So, you know, it was that that, that you know, gave me the fire. But as far as playing, you know, yeah, I used to beat on stuff because I wanted to be a drummer, but my mother said, no, you have to learn a real instrument first. 
And um, I tried to argue with her that drums was a real instrument, but she wasn't having it. So that went away. And, um, and then shortly after, uh, I had an uncle who somebody left an old guitar at his house, and um, he gave it to me. So all of a sudden I had this guitar to beat on, so I didn't even know how to tune it, you know. For a couple of years, I just kind of banged on it, you know. I'd, mm. you know, put on a Beatle record and just sit there and strum away. I had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> you know. But then, I don't know, I guess when I was about, um, I guess when I was about 10, maybe, I guess around 10, maybe 11 years old, there was a gentleman across the street who was a, professional guitar player played on bourbon street he played dixieland and you know jazz stuff in the quarter and um he told me to bring it over so i brought the guitar over one day and he tuned it up for me and he started showing me some chords so i remember he showed me this little series of chords that circle leads back to it c leading back to itself and um you know, and in a couple of hours, an hour or so, hanging out over at his house, he showed me these chords, and I was able to play them. I was able to play them right off the bat. So, yeah, because I remember going home and showing my father, and he was kind of blown away because it was like, <laughs> how did you do that? You know, it was, you know, it's usually you have to work on a chord. It takes you a while to get your fingers, you know, to stay in that place. And But it seems like I was, like, perfectly coordinated with it, and he mm -hmm. showed me the chords, and... You know, it was a series of five chords, and um, I just played them. So it started from there, and I started to be able to hear. Um, I started to to be able to hear in songs, uh, you know, some of those chords. So I was able to make my way around different tunes, and then start was able to find my way, just make my way around doing it. Um, I think I might have hit a chord book. Or, Something like that that I just started learning basic chords, and then from there it seemed like it it got kind of easy to just listen to something on the radio and you know be able to play along with it. You know, did you do you ever revisit the your passion for drums later on? <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a I have a kit right now, um, and yeah, I do play a little bit, not too much, but I, I have a kit that I keep over at the studio. And um, they use it as the house kit at the studio. So whenever I go over there, yeah, sometimes. As a matter of fact, on a, so, a couple of songs on a couple of my albums, I, I play drums on mm. it. But um, you know, I'm no, uh, you know, I'm no Russell Batiste or nothing. You know? <laughs> well, but it sounds like you got you got most of your, uh, you know, what you were what you were reaching for, to, uh, with the guitar. I mean, it sounds like the guitar satisfied your musical itch pretty pretty much. Yeah, well, you know, I like to, I like to, you know, play around with everything, you know. So, you know, because I play a little keyboards and mm. other kind of little instruments and lots of small percussion instruments, and uh, you know, I, I kind of have to venture out into these other things. But the guitar, yeah, has become the you know, the main focus. Um, I've spent the most time, you know, put the most time into it, so naturally that's the one that's going to, you know, give you the best results. Well, one, one of the things that, but, I remember the, the 
Um, I mean, you could hear it in your playing, but the, it's actually in in um, in the Chronicles in the Dylan's book where he mentions that that you you could do you know you had uh, Booker licks on your on your guitar. Is that uh, oh like yeah? Piano, I mean, piano, um, piano. Did you applied? Was that a conscious thing, or it just kind of flowed out from you to apply piano licks to? to well, I think it's from. Um, I've, you know, I probably uh, I, don't, I don't listen to a whole lot of guitar players. Uh, I, mm. I mean, not that I don't listen to guitar players, but I don't really have, you know, I can't tell you all of the guys, you know. Right. But I, I listen to a lot of piano players, and um, and I I don't know I've probably listened to I've probably spent more time listening to piano players than than uh, than guitar players, and and New Orleans is. New Orleans isn't really known for guitar players, you know, but it's known for its piano play, great right. piano players. So, you know, it's just kind of a natural thing that happened that just from, you know, there's so much piano in New Orleans music. Right. You know, between, you know, Alan Toussaint and Booker and, you know, Fess, Art Neville, you know, just everybody, you know. Yeah. I mean, going back to Roosevelt Sykes and, you know, whoever, uh, it, it, it's in the music. And and a string of guys, you have no idea who they even are that are great players. Right. Um, you hear these records and, you know, it's just there. So I would always try to, <coughs> I'd play along with the records. And a lot of them, the guitar's not doing anything or it's not even there. You know, it's right. either, you know, it's either they don't even have a guitar or if they have a guitar, it's so far back in the mix, you don't hear it. Or... It's it, you know it's going ting, ting, right. ting. You know it's not, it's not it's okay. Great, I got that. But the piano player is playing, you know. So I would play along with those things, and it was just kind of a. I wasn't trying to cop the piano parts or everything because I'm not really good at like just copping, you know, parts and melody for solos and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I would just play along with it, and somehow the piano thing just kind of fell into place you know mm. so my plan just kind of worked around that and it's and then there is some things that i've you know consciously took from piano you know yeah. um just learning like uh like the intro to uh big chief you know uh-huh. professor Longhair. you if you work that out if you that piano thing if you work that out on guitar mm-hmm. it'll give you a whole nother uh It'll give you a, a whole nother technique right. that you wouldn't normally use on guitar. So I use that sometimes in other things, and it's just a it's just a technique of playing of you know mostly right hand picking the way you pick it, and I use that in other things. So that gives you that piano vibe, you know. Um, and I think that's where Dylan got it from saying that because. I played that for him at one point. Um, we, I was at a show with him somewhere, and uh, I had his acoustic guitar and was playing. And um, I don't know, somehow we got on the subject of... Actually, we got on the subject of Professor Longhair. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I started playing Big Chief. And he, and he wanted me to show it to him. And I started playing it, and... And I think that's where he, and then after that, we just started, you know, playing with some other things, and I was just doing some of those kind of piano-type moves 
So that's where he got that from when he where he uh-huh. said you know he talked about Booker. Yeah. Well, that's something that you do that's very unique. I mean, on the guitar, that's I, I don't I don't see a lot of guys. Um, no. You know, and it's and it's. And it's I was wondering. You thought you know that's something I've always noticed. Um, spending a lot of time around New Orleans music, and the old older rock and roll and certainly older jazz and early R and B styles are certainly piano centric, and then. And then at a certain point, it became like, you know, I don't know, maybe it was Jimi Hendrix or somewhere, be, you know, be, a little before that, where the guitar became king. They didn't even need pianos or, you know, and then if you have a keyboard player, they're just kind of, a, you know, and, it, and then you get like the 80s rock keyboard player where they're just, you know, <laughs> hitting some uh, some pad chords in the back there. And mm-hmm. and the whole, you know, it became like a guitar centric you know, rock and roll became like a, a guitar-centric thing, and that, and that, outside of yeah. New Orleans, that you know, rock and roll piano kind of became a lost art. Yeah, you didn't really hear that too much anymore in the seventies. Uh, well, you did. Uh, you, you did hear some cool piano in the seventies. I, I would think um, moving moving towards the end of the decade into the eighties is when it kind of, yeah, kind of disappeared. I mean, I remember really good piano. You know, pretty much through the seventies. You know, in a lot of songs we had Elton John. You know, I mean, it, it, there's you, you think about it. There's really a good bit. Mm-hmm. But moving into that era you're talking about with the pads and it's more synthesized. Um, yeah, that it kind of started happening end of the seventies. You know, disco and where just became you know more mechanical, and then into the eighties with the whole, you know. MTV generation, uh, right. yeah, the piano playing pretty much completely died. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's funny. I, 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 something I've, I've kind of struggled with, and you know, I, you know, I lug to, to my gigs. I lug uh, a Rhodes, you know, an old Rhodes piano, yeah. which weighs like 140 pounds, and you know, so I've been, uh, you know. Uh, Dimitri, the saxophone player, you know, he 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 uh, he teases me, you know, every time he sees me lugging that thing, you know, why don't you get a, you know, you can get like a a Nord or some kind of digital keyboard, and I was I, I wanted to get your can, so I've had so I'm I'm in the verge of actually getting a digital keyboard, I, for a couple of different mm-hmm. reasons, but I wanted to just get your sense, because I know you obviously you've played a lot of different great players, and and, you know, for someone who who really vibes with the instrument and the thing about you know guitar throughout the ages it, the guitar has basically stayed the same whereas keyboards have become gone from you know real pianos and and uh, you know hand mm-hmm. organs and and Rhodes pianos which have this this power mm-hmm. and weight to them to the you know to digital keyboards which could sound great but you know clearly don't necessarily have the same vibe so you know to great kind of synth you know creative synthesizer stuff but what what is your sense in your experience of playing with um with piano players, when when they don't have an access, they only have like say digital pianos. I know, you know, Art Neville uses a lot of digital keyboards. What what is your? Um, have um, you ever seen Dr. John use well, a digital keyboard or any, you know? Are there players I've, that I've, just won't well, touch them? I've, I've seen him. Uh, you know, I played with Dr. John for about a year back yeah. in the nineties. I guess ninety four or something like that. Ninety three maybe. Um, and uh, yeah, most. Most uh, nights there was a grand piano on the stage, but you know I've seen him play. Uh, I've seen him play digital pianos, and mm-hmm. you know just on little certain things, and 
you know, we'd go do a little thing that was like maybe a song or two, some kind of little event, and you know, yeah, he'll play it. He'll play. He'll play anything. Right. You know? <laughs> Um, and he, he, Dr. Jean is so great. I mean, he could, yeah, yeah. He, he could sit down, you know, and just, you know, whistle it to you, you know, but, yeah. uh, but I've seen him, I've seen him on digital pianos, but, um, uh, mostly, mostly grand pianos. Um, but other, uh, you know, and Art Neville all these years, you know, I've been playing with Art Neville since off and on since 1981. And, um, you know, I've seen him play. You know, he used to have one of those old uh, Yamaha digital grands. Right. I think that's what they were, some kind of, you know, it was a big thing. that He used to play those when, when I first got in the band. And um, he used those for years, and he's used different things. But now he's always used, you know, Art's never had, a, like, say, a grand piano on the gig. You know, it's always right, been right, right. some type of digital piano or synth you know, that had the sound or sample type thing. You know, and back in the 80s, you know, he used to use a lot of synthesizers. He'd have three synthesizers midded up on stage right, right. along with his B3, you know. Yeah. So, you know, he's really, he used to really be into digital um, uh, keyboards. Look. Now he's pretty much just on the B3, you know. Do you, do you have a sense for but, in your own, in terms of your own musical, like, experience? Does it make a difference to you, or if the it's meaning if the player is great, if they're if the music is flowing, it doesn't make it. You know, uh, you know, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, there's all. I mean, there's always a difference. You know, I mean, if you got a great piano player, yeah, I mean, you know, like I played one of the last or maybe the last show with Alan Toussaint mm. in America um, before he passed, and. Um, you know, we had a rehearsal the day before. In the rehearsal, he was playing some kind of little dinky, some kind of little, you know, dinky keyboard yeah. that was trying to sound like a piano. <laughs> uh, but I remember thinking, God, you know, Alan, he's just so great that, you know, it, you you just don't, the feel is so good that you really don't care what it sounds like, you uh -huh, know? Uh -huh. it, it, he, you know, if a good player will take a little dinky sound and make it feel really good. So, yeah. you know, it's really, in that respect, it's not the instrument, it's the artist. Wow, you know? yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, the artist can make anything. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, people talk about guitars and pedals and this sound, pedal makes a sound and that right, you know it's right. a, all that stuff is like icing on the cake it doesn't matter i mean can you imagine that you know i mean Jimi hendrix you think there's some guitar or bad guitar would hold him back or he didn't right. have some pedal yeah you know yeah. what i mean Jimi hendrix could take any old piece of junk plug it in and start playing and, and just blow you away i mean so it's the artist it's not really the instrument oh man that, that answers um, my it, question it, <laughs> it, yeah it might be uncomfortable to to play on certain things but it, it's a good player is going to just you know plow through anything got it know? yeah yeah but, so <laughs> tell me so, so just tell me about uh so i didn't know that that you you played one of the last shows i, I know you've been playing with him a couple times recently before he passed what what was where was that gig was that in new orleans or was that yeah we played um there was a show at um uh, lafayette square and um it was Funky Meters, Allen, and um, 
Irma Thomas. Hmm. And um, I don't remember if they had somebody play before us or not, but basically the way it worked, um, yeah, there was some other act, and then Funky Meters came on, and we did our set. And then towards the, you know, two-thirds through our set, we brought up Irma. And she did a couple of songs, and then uh, we brought up Alan, and he did I don't know I think three songs or some three three maybe four songs, and uh, God it was just great. It was it was yeah it was either one of it was either the last or one of the last shows in the states um, because we did that show and then he went to I think he was in Spain when he passed, and um, yeah it was really really a rough time what what was uh, he like this, this uh, was like three weeks this was like he passed like three weeks after yeah. we did that gig and um yeah it was tough the, what, what was, was what was he like what was he like to to you know play with the hang hang with what what do you what are your what memories well, stand strong for you i can't really talk too much about hanging with because um, mm -hmm. my my time with him was always either in a studio or on a gig mm -hmm. and um there wasn't a whole lot of hanging you know <laughs> right right um but um to work with him you know god he was you know he was it was funny alan was he was scared it was scary to work with him you know because he's so you know he has this thing about him he's got this indomitable spirit that mm. just you know he don't say much you know, but you know what he's thinking by the way he looks or the way he, you, you, you know where he's at by what he don't say. Hmm. And it's, it's kind of intimidating, you know, because he, he really, he expects, you know, when he would come into a situation with other musicians, he, he would expect them to be on their game, you know? Yeah. And, and he always was. And I mean, he was always on his game. Hmm. And he would he would demand that from you know people around him too, and, but he had a way of letting you know it without saying anything. It, it was mm -hmm. that's how he was a powerful cat, you know. He he, you know, this thing emanated from him that just this excellence just hmm. emanated from, him. and it made you a better player, you know. It made you wake up, you know. You had to be awake when you were playing with him, and I really respect that, you know. That that's. That was kind of like working with Dylan, you know. You had to really be awake to be with him. You know, these people are, you know, these people ain't fooling around. Hmm. <laughs> you know, these people, whereas, you know, in New Orleans, there's a whole lot of fooling around. And, <laughs> you know, a lot a lot don't get done because of it. Um, and there's a whole lot of, you know, whole lot of, you know, BSing and fooling around. And these people... And it wasn't none of that. It was business. It wasn't no time for anything except business. Huh. You know? And I really respect that. Huh. You know? How do you, how do you, uh, you know, how's that influenced you in terms of when you, um, let's say, lead your own band? Or do you, do you, do you kind of reference things you learn from, you know? Mm, but, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's not something that you can, that's not some the thing I'm talking about with those guys. It's really not something that you can, uh, you know, you you can't you can't just demand respect. You have to earn it. Right. And and those guys had just a natural thing that came from them. If you don't have that, you know, I don't. 
you know, I'm not really sure what it takes to get to that point. <laughs> you know, you have to realize you're working, you're working with Dylan or you're working with Alan. You're working with people that are already really successful, right, you know? Right, right. So, so, so it's like they can, they can just naturally be that way. Sure. If you're not already, you know, successful and have a record, you know, and have a, you know, have a, a past, a real past. Right, right. Um, you know, you don't, you can't really, you know, that's not going to come from you. You know, it's, it's, it's going to come from wherever you're at. So, yeah, no, in my situation, you know, if I tried to act like that, I would just get laughed at. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and actually do, um, because, you know, I do try to stay all business, you know, yeah, but, yeah. um, but it's not, it's, it's not possible sometimes, yeah. you know, guys, musicians just, you know, they just, you know, some of the pros, you know, you got pros like George Porter that man, when he comes in, he's automatically like that, yeah. you know, because he's, he knows, you know, yeah. um, but, uh, not everybody's like that. You know, you don't get that from everybody around here, you know. So, um, but, you know, I, I get I, I get the I get the job done, though, when I need to. Well, I, well, how you know? let me ask you, you know, in terms of um, working with with art, because I, I know I just I, I I'm not sure if I told you this this story that that um, something that kind of blew my mind in 2008. I was down at Jazz Fest and um, there was a guitar play player a japanese guitar player who was playing with the neville brothers at that point and i happened to run into him at the airport on the way uh, back from jazz fest and i talked to him for a minute or two and he he told me um the what the way rehearsals went with the neville brothers he never he didn't know any of the music and he just showed up and art told him just to you know you know listen <laughs> and you know relax and you know and and play and that was it there was no no uh directions other than that everything was just here's the music and, and we're just going to play was you find that that that's been your experience with uh in general with new orleans music or, or particularly with, with well, well I, I, first off i'm 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 sh i'm shocked to hear that there was a rehearsal <laughs> um, right no I, I, maybe it wasn't I played right, with them. right maybe it wasn't even a rehearsal was just i played game, with them yeah. for 10 years and I, i'm still waiting for a rehearsal <laughs> right, right, right. No, that, that, no, that, 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 yeah, that's a correction of my story. Right, no, that was the idea. There was no rehearsal. He just showed up at the gig. Yeah, so there was, that, right, there right. was, uh, there wasn't even a rehearsal when I joined the band. Right. <laughs> I mean, when I joined the band, you know, Art called me and and asked me if I wanted the gig, and you know, we talked for a while, and I said, yeah. So when I finally when I agreed, um, he said, well, look, you got to go to this, you know, called audition. Because my brothers need to hear you, you know. Yeah. We we got together and I'm, we and I mean yeah we jammed. We didn't rehearse anything. We jammed. You know they just wanted to feel me out, you know, and see how I could flow, you know. Because, yeah. Because those guys are about, you know, there's no the songs are just the songs are just an excuse to a, a platform to leap off into something else, you know. Right. So. And it's a and the gig is you have to be able to play in the moment. You have to be able to think on your feet. You have to have big ears, and you have to know what's going on. Be it, have an awareness of what's happening on the stage with everybody at all times, because it could make a shift. That you know, just slightest thing could shift. You know, and you know, catapult it into some other thing because it's a really live thing. 
And so they were just feeling me out to see if I could hang with that, you know, or if I was a guy that could just learn a song and then recreate a song like a parrot, you know. Well, how, and how, yeah. so we jammed for about an hour, and, uh-huh. you know, I mean, it was great. And when it was over, they said, okay, be at Tipitina's Friday night, <laughs> you know, 10 o'clock. And that was it, you know. And I remember saying, I remember asking, I said, well, are we going to have a rehearsal? And they said, <laughs> we just did. <laughs> so <laughs> um, that was that. So, but yeah, we jammed about an hour. I don't remember doing any songs, any Neville Brothers songs, except maybe, uh, you know, some meter thing, Fire in the Bayou or something like that, you know. But, um, you know, because, you know, the whole thing with all with these type of acts, you know, Neville's, Meters, Funky Meters, you know, Irma, all of these people, you know, when they hire musicians, you know, they expect you to know their catalog already. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, and, and their attitude is like, how can you be living in New Orleans all these years and not know the catalog? So, you know, and there's some, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. It's it's true. So, so if if you want that gig, you know, you really you should know the catalog already. You know. Well, how how often um, does how often does it come up that let's say you you know maybe in the in the earlier t- when when they'll throw a song at you you never heard before on the stage? How often does that happen? Or it's it is that kind of uh, if you know it happens you, a lot. With, well, it used to happen a lot with yeah. art. Um, you know, art would just, uh, you know, we'd uh, listen. I'm I'm outside and it's raining. Is that interfering with I, us talking? No, I can hear you pretty good. It's okay. Yeah. You can you don't yeah. hear the rain blasting in? A little bit. It's all right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um. Yeah, it happened a lot with art. Uh, n- not so much now, but you know when he was younger. Um, yeah, he would just you know the song would break down and art would start just go off into some other thing, and out of the blue he would start singing some obscure song from the fifties, you know. <laughs> and you know you either had to hang with it or don't play, you know. Right. So and that was the good thing about that band was, you know, he'd start doing those things. And if you knew it, great, play along. If you don't know it, well, just, just be quiet for a while, you know? Right, right. Or, you know, and then after, and usually those songs were so simple. He'd, he'd run through a verse or something, and by the time he got to the end of it, you knew what it was. So you'd start playing along with it, you know? Right. So, and you had to be ready for those bridges. But you, you always knew where those bridges kind of went, you know? So it was, it was kind of easy. Yeah. Were there, and he, he yeah. still does that once in a while, but not like he used to, you know. But is that is that unique to the Neville Brothers, or like you're saying, you know, people uh, artists who have a, a large a known catalog, or is that kind of a New Orleans thing in general? If if you're gonna sign up for a gig, it's just you know, here's the the music on no, the it's spot. No, it's, it's yeah. not. A, I wouldn't say it's a New Orleans thing in general. Um, you know, Neville Brothers. Neville Brothers would. Actually, the band that that does that the most was Funky Meters, right. early Funky Meters. Uh-huh. Um, because when that band was, you know, me and Russell Baptiste and playing with with Art Neville and George Porter Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that band was just pure fire. I mean, it was, you know, it was insanity, <laughs> but it was it was fire. And yeah. there was nothing that we, we couldn't play. I mean, we. 
in the middle of a song, we would, somebody, it, and the beauty of that band at the time was there was no, you know, no one person was actually running the stage, you right, know? Right, right. And, and it was, it was four minds just all synced together and had like one mind working. I mean, we used to actually, it was so tight that we would make mistakes together. Right. There'd be nights that we would, we would do these medleys where we'd go from song to song. And, and some nights, there were nights where me and George and Art all hit the wrong chord at the same time or would go into the wrong song <laughs> together. Oh, man. And, you know, we would just look at each other and bust out laughing because, I mean, how much, how much, you know, how much more together can you get than making mistakes together? Yeah. You know? Well, you so, know, I, I, was at, I was at a number, you know, when I was, I, was in, I told you, I think, a little bit about when I was in high school. That, you know, that, that, that band was my, my big influence, and in, in, me and Pete, you know, um, Pete Carp. We, we we would go to the shows uh, in New York at Tramps, and and I saw that actually I saw the couple of shows we saw a run of shows with uh, Leo and then and then shows with the Funky Meters when you when you joined the band, and that was like all all in those years that we were going down to Tramps, and I I remember I mean that was some of my my greatest musical, you know that was, were my greatest musical experiences and I I remember um, exactly what you're saying it was, it was like some some psychic there was some psychic things going on that were like mind that were kind of uncanny and mind-blowing i remember you you get i remember there was one you guys broke out uh played voodoo child you kind of took the lead on that a little bit i remember that being a, a particular you know is uh, uh yeah if you were able to if if from the audience if you were able to really zero in focus on what we were really doing you know, most people are there just dancing around, having fun, having drinks, talking to their friends, you know. But if you really, really paying attention yeah. and zeroed in on what we were doing, yeah, there would be some really magical things going on. Uh, I mean, incredibly magical, because you would know that, oh, okay, that, that wouldn't normally happen. This wouldn't normally right. happen, you know. So, yeah, there'd be, and Tramps was a place that, that it, just, it just pulled that out of us, you know, because... It was great being in New York. Yeah, Tramps was just, you know, Tramps was one of our favorite places. And not everybody, but most of us loved being in New York. And it was just a good time for us, you know. And Tramps was always, we would do two nights, two shows a night, and all four shows are always sold out. So they were great crowds. And, you know, we had a lot of friends up there. So it was just a good time those were always really good gigs you know yeah so would you say you mentioned you mentioned that that might have been you know some of your peak musical experiences uh what would you you know how would you you know if you had to like um mention just a couple of peak experiences in your life of uh what would what would you include um well career-wise mm. If you're talking about playing, um, definitely the top of the list is doing the Dylan sessions. Um, mm. That was it was kind of a tough time, and it was it was scary, you know, and it was a yeah. little rough at times. But uh, but it was the most uh, valuable experience I, I think I've had 
um, I think I've gotten the most out of that. What was um, rough about it? Being around people. Um, well, again, you know, when you're working with somebody like that, there's, there's no there's no playing around. You know, you come on a session and it's all work. So, you know, you come in, you get into place, and, you know, you're ready to go. And, you know, Bob would come in and he'd come in, walk straight to the kitchen, pour a cup of coffee, light a cigarette, and start working on lyrics. Mm. And while we were, you know, getting it together, and uh, and then he'd sit, when he was ready to go, you know, he would sit down and, you know, expect everybody to be ready, you know. Because mm. when he was ready to go, you could go. Yeah. <laughs> the tape better be rolling, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which it always yeah. was. Yeah. Um, nothing got past Lanois and Mark Howard and Malcolm Byrne. Those guys are the best. So I would say that was one of one of those experiences. Um, working working with Paul Simon was interesting. Uh, a couple of days in the studio and some live things that we did together with Edie Brickell. Hmm. Uh, Saturday Night Live and Letterman's show and things like that. Those those really stick in my head as being really good times and valuable, you know, I mean, as far as an experience and watching how people work and watching how guys like that operate, you know, the level that they operate on, you know. So, what, what so could, yeah, yeah, for example, what, what's something... And, and, yeah. What's, what's some, that? What's something that, you know, that, let's say, happened at the the Paul Simon, uh, Edie Burkell session that... that you took out of it um, particularly well one one until uh, until I actually played with him I I had no uh, I mean it, it was obvious that Paul Simon was you know a great guitar player yeah but it wasn't until I uh, actually sat down with him and played that I realized what a really great guitar player he is hmm. You know, he'd, he'd try to get you to do things, you know, that, you know, he would be trying to explain something to me, you know, and, and then he'd show me on guitar and he'd start playing these, you know, kind of mind-boggling things, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I realized, wow, he really, really is a great guitar player. He's not just, you know, a strummer. Right. He can really play. So, um, and, I, and, and Paul is kind of, uh, there's something about his playing that reminds me of, what we talked about as far as my, you know, emulating a piano at times. Hmm. You know, Paul seems to, his plan, it's it's more calculated than my plan. Mine is more intuitive, and I'm not thinking about what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing when I'm doing it. I'm just <laughs> doing it, you know. Um, Paul seems to be more calculated than that. There seems to be, like, uh, when he's playing things on guitar, you can all... You can almost imagine hearing that on a piano, hmm. you know. So there's a lot of similarities I heard there um, with with his guitar playing and a piano. Um, and I think it's because he looks at chords and he looks at melody in a way that, you know, it's really coming from him as chords and melody. So it doesn't matter what instrument he's on. He's playing what's coming from his mind. Hmm. You know, he's playing what's coming out of him. And... It, it could probably be easily translated to a piano, you know. Hmm. I don't know if I'm making sense. Yeah, of that, yeah, but definitely, definitely makes sense. Way, Absolutely, that's the way I can describe it, you know. Huh. But and you know, and, and another uh, another peak 
you know, I've had some peak moments yeah. with Neville's, with, with yeah. Art Neville especially. I mean, Art has been, a, you know, one of my greatest teasers. And, you know, I really learned, I, I already had a good handle on rhythm when I joined the band, but after I got in the band, I was, you know, catapulted into this whole other level of rhythm playing and understanding it on a whole new level. And I remember one of those moments was, I, I remember being in the studio, we were recording a Dixie beer commercial. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I remember we cut the track, and then Art went back in to do some kind of a clavinet overdub. Uh-huh. And I remember I was in the control room just watching him through the glass, and he started playing this thing that, I don't know what it, what it was he played, he just started playing this little groove on clavinet. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, like I had an epiphany, this it, like the whole world just opened up into this whole new level. Just the little thing he was playing wow. against the track we had cut, it was so powerful to me that it, I, all of a sudden, it opened up into this whole other thing about rhythm. Wow! And I had this understanding about about how rhythm works and how you know how it all comes together. You know, for a long time, you know, Art would Art would always talk about, Art would always tell me, man, you need to understand the secret groove. <laughs> and that's all he would tell you, you know. And and I was always, what are you talking about? You know, I, <laughs> I thought he was crazy, you know. And he, But he would every once in a while, you know, he'd say, man, you need to understand the secret groove. And... <laughs> And I had I didn't know what he was talking about, you know, and and I would, but but by him constantly saying that, it would stick in the back of my mind. It was kind of working like a like a Zen cone, you know, right. like a you know like a Zen master will give you some kind of little phrase, you know, and yeah. and then over time it opens up into you know it reveals itself, and and that's what happened. I mean, by him just saying that every once in a while, man, you need to understand the secret groove. Over time, I, and little things like that happened, like that day in the studio and when I realized this and realized that. And as time moved on, this thing unfolded and opened itself up. And, and, I, and all of a sudden, one day, I understood what he was talking about. And I realized, wow, he's, he's not only is he not, you know, not crazy, he has a seriously deep understanding of how this stuff works and what makes this you know the magic that it is what that's what makes it magical and and mm. that's what makes it a thing that nobody else can do or not a whole lot of people understand you know because um, you have to go through those experiences to get to that point you know? so i mean so it, w- it would probably be a, a pointless question considering how you re- you know received that particular uh n- nugget of, of wisdom over the years you know to to ask what that more what that means to you i mean what the secret groove what that you know that that to me that that, that just sounds so inspiring and, and really well j- you know, with my, it, you know it, experience with yes to you guys. it's not something yeah. it's not something that you can just tell somebody because yeah if he could have told me he'd have just told me right like i said it's something you have to grow it has to grow in time for you to completely understand but but right. to the best i can explain it is uh to put into words that only narrow the 
experience. Um, all I can really say is, you know, I kind of, at some point, I got to a place where I found myself able to, um, you know, it, it, it what became apparent to me was that the, the secret groove was the the groove that a groove that's happening underneath everything you're doing. It's a groove that's happening, but nobody's actually playing. Um, it's a it's a rhythm. It's a it's a big underneath feel of rhythm that that nobody's really playing. But but if you feel it and if you're rooted in it, you're able to go anywhere. You know, it's like it's like being able to. Uh, feel everything at one time, you know, being able to feel whole notes and half notes and quarter notes and 16th notes and 32nd notes, all of those rhythms, you know, and, and not only, you know, that, but all of the rhythms there is, you know, being able to just have a feel of that underneath to where you can go in and out of that easily and play, you know, just about anything you want. And according to the rhythms that's happening on the stage, you're able to play with those, play with those other rhythms and go in and out, and you know, because there's this big structure underneath that's supporting it, oh, man. and that's the secret groove, you know. So when everybody understands that, uh, I think that's what it is that pulls it in a place that everybody's working with one mind, you know, where everybody's locked in, and no matter what you do you're going to be on the same page, you know? Wow. Um, you, you, you get to a place where you never lost. You never get lost because even when a big band like that starts to veer off from a song and go off into some other kind of groove and, you know, just start improvising, um, you know, to me it's that like, so-called secret groove that holds it together and gives everybody the the... the I don't know the the courage to to uh, you know go off in another direction and be able to you know hang together. I mean, I I can't tell you. Know, you jazz know. guys, yeah, just like jazz guys, you know. I mean, yeah, they understand what's at the the root of what they're doing, and they they're able to play with each other and go off and play the most nonsensical things out there, and then soup and then pull it right back in, you know, because they they they're supported with. You know, they have a great understanding of what's happening underneath that. It's like like they're rooted in something in something that's not being heard, but they're hearing it and exactly. they're feeling it or hearing it inside. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how much right. how much that brings things together for me. Just you hear you talking about that, um, and I, and I, and the one the one thing. So I, it it almost feels like it just makes me want to you know just cut a cut a track you know <laughs> start playing some music. To talk like that, and and so at risk of not over over talking that, because obviously that's something that that's an experience. I I do want to ask you, you know, how how would you apply that, or how do you even think art thinks about it, or or have you thought about it, how that applies to life outside of music? You know, how meaning the I mean, because because for for me, my mind jumps to like a secret groove of life. You know, kind of getting into a space where where you're kind of integrating things in, in other parts of your life um which so, you know which um, yeah. so how, how do you, how does that does, does that uh have you thought about that no i, I mean I, I don't i don't feel a 
I don't um I don't necessarily feel a connection between that particular thing and anything else. I mean, to me that that one thing really uh, strictly applies to you know, being on stage or being in a studio or whenever you're playing together and and you're uh you know, it it, it strictly applies to to music. Uh-huh. Um but but you know what I and I'll get to I'll get to your question mm-hmm. eventually. Sure. <laughs> but but what what comes to mind though is that you know that that secret groove that thing I'm talking about. I, I've noticed that the, the people that I noticed that a lot of guys, a lot of bands, they get together to rehearse and or play or whatever. And unless they're on a gig, if they're just rehearsing or playing around, they kind of have a tendency to kind of play the songs half-hearted, and it's mostly about figuring out the chords or, you know, getting the structure and arrangement together. And they just kind of halfway play through it, you know? Yeah. And I've noticed that that there's a difference. A lot of bands do that, and but bands that really understand what I'm talking about, that secret groove. Yeah. You know, playing with the Neville Brothers, playing with Funky Meters, you know, playing with Art Neville. All those groups, I noticed that if we ever get together to rehearse something, there's nobody ever just kind of half-heartedly plays through it. At a rehearsal, everybody plays it exactly like they're going to play it on the stage. They play it with the same fire, the same enthusiasm as they would plan it on the stage. And and it, I don't know if it's a coincidence or if it has something to do with having that, being rooted in that groove, but the bands that have it, they're going to play that song full out, whether it's a rehearsal, uh, a, a camera check, a sound check, uh, no matter what it is, they're going to play it. They're not going to just doodle through it. You know, mm. so that's one thing I've noticed. But as far as you know, I don't see a, a any correlation between that and you know other things in life. But you know, to, to answer your question, there, there is a you know in life too. You know, there's a yeah, there's a deep similarity. You know that if you can you know understand everybody's everybody has questions about their life. Everybody at some point wants to know who they are and where they come from and where they're going. And, yeah, I think when you can start to answer those questions, yeah, I think you could call it, you know, the secret group, you know. Um, Yeah, I think everybody's searching in some kind of way, Um, you know, whether it's, you know, in church searching for God or in an ashram searching for God or if you're sitting at the bar searching for something you know i think it's all the same you know um i think everybody has desire and everybody wants something it's just a matter of finding what it is you want and how high a level you can attain you know if that makes sense yeah it makes a, it makes a lot of sense i mean do you find that that having you know success in music and and you know, artistic success and, you know, um, even, you know, career success, do you find that that, that can spill over to 
um, other areas? I mean, are there lessons you can learn from from excelling as you do in in, in a, yeah? A well, in, in in another sense, yeah, it is all in 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 a different sense. It's all the same. I mean, you come into your, you know, if you if you spend time refining your spiritual life, mm-hmm. it's gonna, you know, you're gonna carry that into everything you do. It's gonna determine how you act and you know other situations is going to determine how you carry yourself when you you know at a gig or in the studio or rehearsing or whatever you're doing you know mm. um so yeah there's there's it, it correlates in that sense i think you know what about in terms of uh you know you you uh you know be in terms of relationships in terms of being married do you, do you feel like that you find any particular conflicts over the years that you've resolved or, or you've you figured out because I know it's it's kind of a cliche for a, an artist a particular musician to have you know a conflict with their getting so involved creatively or, or with touring or with a, a music career that often you know guys will, or you know ladies will put off serious relationships or you know they make they make their music the f- number one and their family or, or, you know, marriage number two. And I, and I wonder what your, your sense of that is and your experience, your personal experience and just what well, you've yeah, seen. Well, yeah, it's, you know, it's a tough thing. Um, it's a tough thing to be on the road a lot and, and carrying on, you know, a relationship or having a family. And, I mean, I've been fortunate. I've been married 38 years now. Wow. And, yeah, and, but, you know, I was blessed to have been... You know, a saint came my way, and <laughs> and I, I've, you know, I, I must have did something good last life because, um, yeah, I have a wonderful wife that's been patient with all of this, hmm. and um, and through some really trying times, hmm. um, not only being gone, uh, you know, not only the traveling, but the. You know, it's an insecure life. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's a very insecure life. There's no, there's. I mean, there's no guarantees in life anyway. I mean, because any, I think any security you think you have, it's just an illusion anyway. Right. But the difference is that you know some people have a steady job and they have X amount of money coming in every month. And but you know when you're a musician, you might you know it's it's you know uh, one month might be nothing. It might be nothing for a couple of months. Right. And then all of a sudden you have a month where you pull it all in, you know. Yeah. You have to be able to, you know, you have to be able to, uh, you know, watch your money and spend wisely and don't go crazy when you have it. Right. Because there will be those times when you won't have it. Right. So there's the insecurity, financial insecurity. Um, uh, there's the traveling, being gone all the time. That's tough. And and other crazy things. I mean, you know, you find yourself all of a sudden, like me, you know, in legal entanglement. Right. And for years having um, to fight legal things, you know, and, you know, lawsuits. And, you know, when things like that come along, yeah, that can be really tough on a relationship, you know. But again, I've been really fortunate, you know, so... Uh, yeah. But but I don't know very many musicians <clears throat> that's been married thirty eight right, years. Right, right. That's that's very. Except for uh, George Porter <laughs> Jr. and his wife, they've been together longer than that. Well, that's well, that's why um, I feel I feel like you have so much to you know. I mean, I know that we're we're kind of running out of time, but I um, 
you know, hopefully we can continue this another time because because uh, this I feel like you you in particular have a lot to share, even though maybe you feel like you kind of were blessed. You know, it, it sounds like there was a lot of of wisdom that you've applied to, to making things work, to, you know, to bringing your life into into balance with your career and your marriage. And, you know, um, yeah, well, I think, you know, again, when, if, if you you know, if you work, if you spend time refining the spiritual end of things, um, well, then it, it, it puts you in a place that it kind of makes it easier in the sense. It, it doesn't really make it easier. It doesn't make the situation easier, but it makes the situation sometimes easier to deal with. Right. Mm-hmm. Because you're dealing from a higher place. You're dealing from a place where you can kind of just look down on life, you know, like a chessboard, you know, and you can see everybody on the board. You can see the moves. You can kind of tell who's going to make the next move. Mm. It's, it kind of helps in that respect, you know. Mm. Um, it still still can be trying, you know. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it definitely helps, you know. Oh, Brian, I really, really appreciate your, your time. Um, this has been yeah, amazing. Time, I, this the, the, you know, secret groove thing is going <laughs> to... It's already... I, it's already yeah, working, yeah, working on my neurons, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget it. <laughs> no, man, I, I won't. Believe me. I, I, so I you know, hope we can continue this another time. But, I, but uh, again, I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, you've been a great inspiration to me and, and a, a great teacher to me. And, uh, oh, thank you, Josh. And I wish you all... And I appreciate what you're doing here. This is a, a good thing you're doing. Oh, thanks, man. But I wish, I wish you all the, you know, the health and, and joy and success. Uh, continue making um, incredible music, you know, revealing the secret. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> so hopefully I'll have something new coming out soon. And, um, you know, we'll see. Looking forward <laughs> to it. Okay. All right, man. Well, take care. Stay dry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will. Yeah, we have an in- we're having a really rainy day today, but it's kind of it's kind of nice because it's laid back, and I'm kind of enjoying it. Oh man, so, I, I I remember that Bayou rain. I, you know, it's a certain mood. That's all right. Well, yeah, I'm just sitting here looking out at the pine trees, watching the rainfall. So yeah, it's pretty nice. Life is good. Yeah, thank God. Well, <laughs> okay, Josh. Take care, Brian. Thanks Enjoy. for calling. Okay, all the best. Thanks. I'll talk to you later. Okay. All right, bye bye. You've been listening to the Sound Heights Records podcast. Hope you enjoyed our interview with Brian Stoltz. This being our first episode, just getting the conversation started, but please be in touch with us. You can reach us through our Facebook page, through our website, soundheightsrecords.com, Instagram. We're launching a Patreon campaign soon, so sign up for our mailing list on our website and stay tuned for that. Intro and outro composition is the song 23 Wigglesworth Street by the Brooklyn Jazz Warriors from their upcoming album, Kadera, due to be released September 10th. Remember, abundant singing and playing of music will bring about the ultimate redemption. See you next time.